Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a replay of a conversation with Austin Channing Brown discussing the then new book, I'm Still Here, which some of you might know. It has hit the New York Times bestseller list the last couple weeks, which is very exciting. Uh, We mentioned the first time she was on the podcast, which was all the way back in 2014. So I'm very grateful that she's someone I've been listening to and learning from for uh, many years. And it's been exciting uh, to see the way that uh, people have connected to her work more and more over the last few years and uh, for for good reason. And uh, here we go. Uh, Austin Channing Brown, replay. All right, friends, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have returning for, I think, the third time, our friend Austin Channing. How are you, Austin? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Now, today we have a first-time guest, long-time listener, first-time guest. <laughs> That's right. Hanging out right next door. My sweet like, boy. On your lap, not like next door, like literally <laughs> next to you. Yes, he's, he's in the proverbial studio today. Do you know when we, when we did our first podcast, it was years, I believe it was the first podcast you ever did. It was the first podcast I ever did. And we've, we've grown up so much since then. I, I just think, want you to know I'm an expert now. You have nothing to fear. I, I had nothing to fear the first or, time. Or maybe more to fear. I don't know. <laughs> maybe more. <laughs> it might be more to fear. It might be that. I don't know. But uh, like things have changed. You got a kid now. I feel oh. like I've added a kid since the first podcast. <laughs> We got a dog in the background, too? Good Lord. Everybody's here. Everyone's here except the husband who would keep everyone quiet. Yeah. Where's the husband? Is he working or something? Working. I thought he didn't like me, and that's why I was Bringing home the bacons. Well, you know, you've got a book out that's going to bring in all the bacon. (laughs) Is it it released yet? It is not. It will be released next week. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So since the first podcast, you've added a kid. I probably have added a kid. You now, uh, you were like, like working I was at a resident director at Calvin. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. And, now, and now I just write and take care of all the folks you hear in the background. But uh, finished a master's degree, right? I had already finished it before, oh, you already we, had it. before we talked. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. excuse me. I thought it's you just okay. seemed smarter because you had a master's <laughs> degree, but you just. Well, I'm, I'm glad because I did write a book. And so it's really important to me that I seem much smarter than yeah. the last time we talked. Yeah. Well, okay. The, the book writing process. Yeah. Was it everything you thought it was going to be? Oh, it was so difficult. It was so difficult. And I really, really love writing, but I was pregnant as I was writing this book. Mm. And so writing with a foot in my rib cage, wouldn't recommend it. Just you would know, not recommend it. Honestly, I never thought about trying. So I uh, <laughs> just never was going to in the first place. It was, it was really, really difficult. And being tired all the time, especially in those first, that first trimester, um, dealing with nausea, right? Like I can barely have a conversation, but I'm going to sit and stare at a laptop and yeah. try to write words while they're like swimming on the screen. Yeah. It was really tough. And then he was born right as I finished writing but then i had to do all the edits yeah as with him as a newborn so yeah it was really really tough well it worked out well but i did it i did it i'm very I, proud of myself okay let me tell you what happened i've three times i've yes. read a book for a podcast on an airplane and i've cried three times Aww. three times it's happened once it was um becca stevens you know she is she's in nashville she's thistle farms you should know who she is. You should know who she is at some point in your life. You need to know. Yeah. But she talked about her um, her dad passed away when she was young, 
And so, like, as a father of little girls, like, that's always my fear. So, sure. And then uh, a guy named Carl Lentz, a pastor in New York, was writing about one of his friends who had a kid die. I think it's a kid dying. That's oh, what makes Lord. me cry. Like, yeah. One of his friends had, like, a five-year-old die of an asthma attack. Oh, my and goodness. Then, and then I was reading your book the other day on an airplane, and I think I teared up as well. And <gasps> I, I think it was the... I'm trying to remember which part it was. I, th- I think was that part- the letter to my son it, to continue the theme. <laughs> Honestly, no, it was because I'm not going to be connected to a parent writing to a son because I don't have son. I have oh, all girls. Sure, for sure, for yeah. Sure. So like oh, little boy suffering. Honestly, I think it was you tell a story about being in fourth grade and uh, yeah. a kid calls you the N word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was thinking my oldest daughter's in third grade now. Uh, and I was uh-huh. like, wow, what? I mean, she's white. She's never going to be called that word uh, and have it mean anything like what it meant to you. But I was thinking of like, that's just a little kid. Like, that's, yep. that's, not, that's not right. Totally. When, okay, your son's eight months old. And I'm, I'm assuming you haven't talked to him about the N-word at eight months old. But my third grader came home and asked me, hey, dad, what is the, what is the A-word and what is the S-word and what is the F-word? I'm like, oh, wow, we're, ha- we're having this right now. <laughs> And so I, I've been thinking about, like, how am I going to communicate to my daughter what those words are, which I've since yeah. told her. And uh, she, I, first time I'm cussing on the podcast, she, <laughs> she, she, she called it asshole. And I thought, that's really cute, I guess. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but it is. You're like, you're the cutest swear I've ever seen. I know, the best. <laughs> but I want to differentiate those words yeah. from the N-word. Your son's right next to you. I feel like maybe uh, he's eight months. He's not going to know what you're saying right now. Have you guys thought, you and your husband thought about how you're going to communicate that? Like, how do you teach that? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, so, so far, we sort of talk around it. <laughs> we, don't, uh-huh. we don't talk about it directly. Um, and I think... Um, Honestly, don't know. Did you have that? Honestly, don't know. Did you have that conversation before fourth grade? I do not remember having the conversation at all with my parents. I'm not even sure I told them what happened. Honestly, hmm. um, but my father was a big fan of me defending myself just because I was a girl. Yeah, and so um, I'm sure he would have completely condoned me knocking him out, or you know, what, whatever reaction I would have had, he would have been okay with um but yeah for this this little guy okay well maybe uh, a couple podcasts down the road yeah. we'll have this conversation and know what what that's like um sadly yep yeah i i, I don't regret uh oh, yeah I, I feel for you i feel for you okay so let's talk about your book uh, i'm still here's the title and mm-hmm. you tell your story in the book and so you start off, you were bo- you're an Ohio kid. I am. I used to live in like Marietta, the Marietta area of Ohio, like Southeast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I'm the opposite side from J.D. Vance. So he, he's on the west side, I was on the east side, Ohio, South Ohio. But you grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. I did, yep. And then there's a divorce happened with your parents, and then you go right. Toledo, yeah, I was in Toledo, and then my mom moved to Cleveland. Okay. And so I would spend summers with her in Cleveland. And so you, in the book, you talk about, like, you felt like you, like, 
your, you question your own blackness. Oh my word. Did I, okay. <laughs> I, like, I, before I felt like the most black person ever because I was always around white folks. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was uh, like, there were, there were a handful. I was not the only black kid in my class. There were a handful of others. Um, but nonetheless, because there, we, we were predomin- predominantly a white classroom, um, and because like all, all my teachers were white, it just felt like there was a lot of whiteness all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they would play like music videos, like DC talk and Michael W. Smith. And I would be like, what in the world? Can I get some Kirk Franklin or Fred Hammond or something? Mm-hmm. Right. So I, so I just felt like very, very black, but then I go to Cleveland and walk into this day camp, the summer day camp, and think, oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> hmm, something's different. <laughs> maybe there. I am not. Um, not that I didn't think I was black, but I didn't realize how not black I was. Um, how would you define being not black? Oh man, <laughs> it's so hard. Well, it's not. So at that at that point, um, I knew a lot about, let's say, African American history. I knew a lot about artists um, that my parents loved and my parents listened to, um, music from the radio stations that they really liked. (laughs) Um, But I didn't know much about contemporary African-American stuff. So particularly if my parents weren't interested. So, So one of the things I talk about in the book is that even though I knew who Whitney Houston was because my parents would listen to Whitney Houston, I had no idea who Bobby Brown was. <laughs> and why she shouldn't be married to him. And why she shouldn't be married. And all the kids were like, oh my God, I can't believe Whitney Houston is going to marry him. It's such a bad idea. And I was like, huh. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I just could not participate in a lot of the conversations because I, I genuinely just had no idea what folks were talking about. And sometimes I would have like just an inkling, but just not enough. Right. So they would talk about boys to men. Well, I knew boys to men, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know each individual person's name or their story. (laughs) So, you know, so it's like, okay. How did that make you feel since as a kid, not knowing pop culture, yeah, it was so hard. It was so hard because I had also never been the new kid before. And so for the first time I was the new kid, I was in an all black space I, and, and I was the one who lacked like knowledge. Like I was the A plus kid. I would help the teachers out. And now I'm in a place where I need help. Like I have no idea what people what are talking do. about. But some of us would go, well, I feel, I don't feel cool. Like I'm, I'm out of the cool kids club because I don't know who SWV is or whoever or whatever. <laughs> um, but you you say, I don't feel black, which. Yeah. Well, cause I didn't talk the same way. I didn't, um, you know, I didn't know the slang of the time. Um, and even if, even when I learned it, I was like, I am never going to say that cause it's not going to ever sound right coming out of my mouth. Um, but, and I genuinely just wasn't used to the culture, like the culture or particularly with kids, but I mean, I think with black folks generally is that we're generally like really loud and really energetic. And because I was so scared, I was very quiet and reserved. Like I, I just felt like I was the opposite of everything that this culture was. Mm-hmm. And the dominant theme of the culture was that it was black, right? Yeah. So, so I just felt like, am I not as black as I thought I was? 
and kids, you know, are so very creative. And so I was called, called like an Oreo, like I'm black on the outside, but I'm not, mm. but I'm white on the inside. Um, or I was asked, um, why do I talk white? So it wasn't just me, right? Like it wasn't just happening in my head. Other kids were looking at me like, where are you from? <laughs> what is happening with you? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just a really strange thing to feel so black in one space and then to be like, oh, <laughs> yeah. maybe I'm not as black as I thought I was um, okay, so, in another space and then have to move between them. Yeah, so what some might think of as the opposite side of the coin is in white culture, if you act like you're a quote-unquote black person, they called you a different name, which is the N-word with a W in front of it. But that doesn't have the same connotation, I would assume, in the black culture of saying, oh, you're not really black compared to being a white person. Right. Oh, you're, you're quote unquote trying to be black. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it was, you know, for some, there, there are a lot of black kids who go through this and, um, and some, for some, it's really, really painful, um, and really traumatic, like to hear other black kids not affirm who you are. Um, and for me, I can't say that I was hurt as much as I was like, yeah, I am so different. <laughs> I was like, why am I so different? I don't understand. You, um, I think you said in the book that you didn't have your first black teacher until you're in college. Yeah. And how that was such a uh, major experience where there's illustrations and stories that like connected to you. And I've never. Oh my God, I've, it was so fun. I've never felt. I, I, like, I never thought of something as small as the ethnicity of my grade school teacher making me feel more comfortable. Never been the opposite side oh of that. Oh gosh. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I had like after school teachers who were African American. So, you know, I had folks, adults in my life who were African American, but never someone who was commanding the classroom, who was coming up with the curriculum, who was giving out examples. And for me to walk in, I had one, um, black woman and I had one black male teacher. Um, and I just fell in love with both of them. But yeah, the, the, the very first, her name was Crendelin McMath. And she used to use... Hold on, what was her last name? <laughs> McMath? McMath. And she was a math mm-hmm. teacher, right? Like she had to be. No, no, That's no, no. Not... She, well, business, sort of. I mean, she has she to be... Her like last name is McMath. Like, <laughs> someone failed her if she's not a math teacher. <laughs> oh, she was so delightful. Okay. Um, she actually passed away a few years ago. Um but she would, oh, it was just so much fun because I had been in classrooms forever where teachers would use examples like, so, you know, when you go sailing or, you know, if you, when you go see hockey, or when you, and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, but I can't say that every single time a reference doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I just move on with the class. Yeah. And so to sit in a classroom where she was like, you know, let's say you're starting a hair care business and you want to put a relaxer on the menu. And I was like, say what? <laughs> yeah. Well, all the white kids were like, mm, don't know what you're talking about. Did it? And it was so satisfying. Ditto. Ditto. I get that. It was so satisfying. Satisfying because you felt like, okay, this, this person connects to me. I- For the first time, I am not doing the work of having to interpret what the context means in order to understand the point, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And for the first time, all the white students in the classroom were having to be like, oh, there is like a part of the human experience of which I am not aware. Yeah, yeah. I I can't help but think there's a connection between that and how many times you described, like your name, Austin, which is my my middle name, one of the... Like, we're basically related. Like, your first name is I mean, mine. Basically. Like, we're, we complete each other's sandwiches. <laughs> um, 
But when you someone shows up to meet you, like when you're working at nonprofit, yeah. you show up. You, oh, good. Lord. And yeah. people are expecting to see the person running it to be you. Yeah, to be me. <laughs> uh, now there's nothing wrong with me, of course. Uh, but then they show up and they go, "Oh, this is a she Austin who's <laughs> right. who's not a white." Black. Yeah. <laughs> right. And there'd be this yeah. like cognitive dissonance of like, "I don't want to say I'm a racist, but I wasn't expecting you." And yep. I, I can't help but think that because they haven't grown up seeing a person of color, a female person of color in leadership positions, when they think of a leadership position, it's going to look more like me than it's going to be like you. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Yeah, so it... Um, When I was, like, a a director of any program, that would happen when... um, when, When I was a resident director and, like, parents would have to... They would be like... Like, you could almost see shaking their head. Like, wait, what? Um, Um... yeah, almost any position, a teaching. Um, so if I'm um, getting up to teach or preach, you can, yeah, every single time people are like, huh, That's- there's a, there's a, there's a moment that I have to let pass as people digest that I'm not quite what they expected. Yeah. Which again, your mom gave you that name, mom, right? Mom mm-hmm. and dad, mom, yeah. mm-hmm. hoping for mm-hmm. people to assume that you were a male. Oh, they did so well. Yeah, they. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if they expected to do as well as they did, well, but kudos to them. They, they chose wisely. Kudos to them. Yes. And I think I've told you this before, but that was actually one of the names that we went through with our daughters because we have all A name girls, and we were thinking we got to stay in the A train. And Austin came up. It didn't make the final cut, but I mean, it was it was up there. So I love it now, but as a kid, I was I was quite annoyed with my parents. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I had a friend, uh, a, a white pastor friend, who went to Memphis for MLK's 50th anniversary, which was the week after, yeah. or the, as, the anniversary of his assassination, the week after Easter. Mm-hmm. And he comes back, and he talked about how it was a great experience. He said, but th- there is a, a difference in the speakers, in the preachers. When mm-hmm. a, a white person would preach, it sounded one way, and when a black person would preach, it sounded, <laughs> in his in his recapitulation of the event, the black preacher sure. sounded angrier than the white preachers. Oh, angry. Yeah, they sounded okay. angry. And uh, I've been processing that, like, since then, like, angry, okay. Um, and now, angry has kind of, like, a negative connotation to it, as I understood what he was saying. And there is an attitude, like, hey, like, hey there's for this, for the people yes. of color. Now, obviously, post-9-11, yes. never forget, we're allowed to be angry about that, Hello. which was a big deal, Hello. but... Mm-hmm. In comparison, not the only atrocity yeah. in American history. Yeah, but there's a sense of you can't be angry about this. That I'm assuming yeah. you've probably sensed, and you have a chapter in which you talk about anger and rage, and you talk about the James Baldwin line that uh, I think said to, to be a Negro is to live like with rage all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you make the turn to say like anger can be this creative force, right? Right. right. So, okay, how do how do we not say like to to be angry and rageful is a destructive thing, but how can it said be a creative force? Yeah. Um, so a lot of times when we talk about um, black history, we don't talk about the we don't talk about black folks as fully human who are experiencing a full range of emotions. Hmm. So we um, think uh, so we talk about people marching. Right. Um, let's just take Selma. Right. Marching, marching um, through Selma. 
do we not think folks were angry that <laughs> there were no mm-hmm. voting rights and that is why they were out there marching because yeah. they were angry right yeah. but that's not the story that's not the story we tell right we i don't know we almost like strip folks of their actual humanity and um and make them nice and kind and palatable and quiet and easy going um and i think that's to our detriment because um, because we don't, we don't think about history then in terms of the beauty that was created out of a sense of anger. Um, and, um, this is actually something that I picked up, um, from Audre Lorde who writes in, um, in her book, Sister Outsider, the creative uses of anger, the uses of anger, the uses of anger. Um, and, and she articulates so clearly that, um, anger could be a destructive force, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it isn't inherently destructive, right? Like we all feel anger and then we decide what we're going to do with that anger. So are we going to, um, march? Are we going to join a rally? Are we going to preach? Are we going to, um, join an organization? Are we going to, like, I, I had a, um, a girlfriend who, well, lots of friends who were really upset in this last election cycle. And, um, and she was really angry, but she didn't, uh, destroy anything. She, (laughs) and she, um, picked organizations to, um, give to, to, um, be a part of their fundraising campaign. She chose one organization to actually volunteer for. Um, I think she like went to a local mosque just to, say if they ever needed volunteers for like any of their events that she would be available. Right. But she was using all of this anger that she had um, and channeling it into ways that she could be helpful, be um, part of a solution, be part of um, saying that these groups of people matter to her. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, white folks really, really are, uh, quite frankly, afraid of the anger of black people. And you would think, honestly, that black folks would be angry a whole lot more (laughs) than we actually generally express. Um, But any hint of that anger, and and white folks do start to get a little nervous. How do you see that? Um, I think in what you just said, I can't think of a place that would be um, more um, hospitable more interested in multiracial community, more passionate about justice for everyone, more interested in, um, in continuing to build MLK's legacy. And yet, what he heard was anger. <laughs> hmm. And, um, and I think that that happens a lot. It happens a lot for black women. It happens a lot for people of color where when we are passionate about something, it is automatically translated as anger. And, 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 and I think I would be okay with that. Even if it was like righteous anger, like they were so passionate and righteous, but it's usually just like, nope, they were just, they were angry. They were angry. You're angry. Why are you so angry? Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe if you weren't so angry, we could hear you better, right? Like yeah. white white folks shy away from the the anger of of black folks on a fairly regular basis hmm. and dismiss whatever is being said. 
because they're just trying to keep the anger at bay. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. It just when you throw the phrase, oh, they're just really upset or they're mad about yep. something, it devalues yep. whatever, whoever the speaker is because of that. Exactly. And exactly. I think I was a guy from Philadelphia, Mason, Pastor Eric, is that his name? Um, anyway, he was one of the speakers at the thing and he did this bit about... Oh. Um, uh, we can get people to the moon, but, uh, you know, white people can't read a book. You, you expect me to tell you what it's like to be a black person. And I, could, I, I can imagine some people go, man, just chill out, dude. We're trying to help out, man. Like, I, I want to understand. So, uh, but for some, I think there's a sense that, hey, I, like, we're trying to move forward. If you're still angry, it seems like it ties us back to an age that we're trying to move past. Oh, see, I think that thinking is difficult. Trying to uh, an age we're trying to move past. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can move past it until we've dived into it mm-hmm. and until we've made all the connections that created this moment. Mm-hmm. And I think white folks really often want to wipe the slate clean, right? Like mm-hmm. or like draw a line in history. So there was that time, and now there's this time, and we're just going to start right here. And black folks don't have that luxury. Most people of color don't have that luxury. Um, because our history matters to us, where we came from, how we got here, what we've been through, what our families have been through, um, prove instructional for how we fight for justice today. And so um, white folks have to be more willing to go back. And quite frankly, uh, I'm going to speak for myself and not like all black people here. It would be nice for just occasionally for there to be white folks who are angry too. Mm-hmm. for white folks to hear that and to be like, I know that's right. Why, <laughs> like, what would that say to you? Or, if you, that would, that would say to me, so I use, I use this example a lot. So I have, um, a little brother and, um, I, you know, I was your average big sister. I would boss him around and tease him and make fun of him and, you know, pretty normal stuff. And then, but let us be out somewhere. Let us be at school. And some little kid made fun of him. And I would be like, yo, <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> I would be, I would be so angry um, at anybody making my little brother feel bad or telling him that, you know, any version of like him not being good enough. It would, it would produce anger in me. And I think white folks are still so removed from black folks and from issues that impact black folks that they don't often access their own anger to, to injustice the same way that black folks are angry. Right. So I, 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 there are a whole lot of black folks who are really angry about unarmed black men dying in the streets. And there are a whole lot of white folks who are not angry about that, who maybe think it's sad or who maybe, think about it or who maybe look at individual videotapes and try and figure out what was he resisting? What was this? Okay. Well, right. But, Mm -hmm. but to be angry, like, like to be upset. Um, yeah, I wish, I, I wish, I wish there was a level of love, a level of closeness, a level of righteous anger um, when it comes to the injustice that, that people of color face. Um, uh, one of my friends is a pastor um, who talked about if I go to a white church and no one's saying anything about you know, an unarmed black kid who, who gets shot, it yeah. makes me say, like, 
oh, y'all don't care about what I care about. Y'all don't care about me. And yeah, I can see that, how you don't acknowledge it. Um, So line in the book is that uh, you're not about condemning white people, but rejecting that that white is right, that it's closer to God. Now, part of the thing you have to overcome is it does rhyme. White is right. And so if it rhymes, often people think that's true. (laughs) And it must be true. You're kind of going uphill because you like it, it's rhymes, but uh, so you're not trying to condemn white people, but you do use the language yeah. of white people, like Whiteness. like yeah, but you use the language of like white people get up, upset about this, white people get like scared of this, or white white fragility people, white people are, and you use like yeah. the big phrase of like white people, and some might hear that as you're you're making a saying about all white people. No, good God. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I could fill the book what, with like some white people, who, some white people, what, some white. But what that people just feels couldn't like... see was the massive eye roll that I just got right there. <laughs> like, there's no way for people to get that same without seeing. Imagine three seconds of her just like inspecting the ceiling. Yep, there, <laughs> and that's the response. You know what's really funny is the first time I did a book signing, there was a white woman who came up to me and she was like, "Can you write hashtag not all white people?" As your, like, as your <laughs> um, and I was like, I sure will. It's my favorite thing I've written in a book so far. Hashtag not all white people. But it, yeah, so so I'm really clear about um, who my audience is for this book, uh, and um, so the first line in my book is is something on the lines of like white people can be exhausting. Yeah, the chapter is white people are exhausting. So often when I when I say that, um, like in public not in the comfort of my own home, but in public. Um, white folks in the audience laugh, too. So it's not like I say this and then only black people are like, ah! and white people are like, mm. mm-hmm. um, Because when you've been talking about racial justice for more than, like, 10 minutes, you've probably been around a white person who was super exhausting, one who, like, took over the conversation or <laughs> one who thought they were saying something really brilliant, but they've actually said something that you have known is a myth for, like, 10 years, um, you know, like white people can just, it's true. They can just be really exhausting mm-hmm. when you're trying to talk about racial justice. And, um, and I knew that that line, if it didn't produce laughter, like if you don't smirk when you read that, then the book probably isn't for you, you know? And I'm just very clear about that. So if there's a person who is reading my book and there have been, check out those Amazon reviews. There are plenty of white folks who are like, mm, nope, she's a racist. <laughs> like we're not, And that's why, right? Because they see me as putting all of white people in one category. And that really isn't my point. My point is that um, as you talk to white folks, there are some things that are very consistent. Um, and if you're not doing those things, that's fantastic but you surely know another white person who is doing those things. Yeah, I, I think people need to give you a little poetic license and like you're, you're writing a book like that. If you, I really did refuse to write like some or every now and again, like I just wasn't going to do that through the whole entire book. It would have made a poorly written book, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> like Some white people every now and again, white people. Yeah, I start up and then there were a handful of white people. Like it's just, it's too just much. I start my book off with a metaphor of leaving uh, a baby ant and a baby human being in a forest alone and driving off. And so, like, I, I'm trying to say, like, you just just go with it. Like, you know, there's, you know, that's ridiculous. Stay with people. 
people. Yeah, you know this is a little bit ridiculous. Like, I think people, like, you, obviously you're doing it. Okay. Um, at the end of the book, you reference uh, Coates and his, uh, obviously, uh, super influential book. Uh, be- I am between- such a big Big fan? Yes. Big fan, obviously. I'm a big fan. Okay, so I read uh, his book, and I've only cried like 10 times in my entire life. But when I, when I read his, like, I don't act like I'm super like, in touch with my emotions, because that's not who I am. But I did, when I was finishing his book and hearing his pessimism, and he's got a boy, right? He's got a son, right? Hearing yep. him like, paint a picture for the future of his son, it was just really heartbreaking, his pessimism. <laughs> and... Mm-hmm. He's not a person of faith, as I understand, right? Like he, correct, okay. correct. But, yeah, he's an atheist. But you, as a person of faith, and like our faith is like the yep. like the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Like, Amen. Doctor King yep. made famous that saying. Uh, when you think of his pessimism compared to your hopefulness, or maybe even you were talking about the shadow of hope in your book. Sure. So is that the difference? Like, of does your faith instill some level of hope, even if it's just a shadow of hope at this point? Yeah, so I um, I do believe in uh, just to like try to try to give it a phrase like ultimate hope, yeah. right? Like hope that one day the whole world will be. Oh come on, baby, hope. we're so close. We're so close. We're almost there. Look, what the heck was I talking about? Uh, let's go back to uh, Coates's pessimism. Like I'll oh, be honest, yes. I set that oh, question. Totally, I set yeah. that question up great. I don't want to do it again. So let's just jump right in, and you're going to answer because I thought it was really good. Because I got around having to say his first name because I can never say it right. And uh, like, oh, Coach, you know Coach. That's what I'm talking about, Coach. You know who I. That is hilarious. Yes, I do believe in an ultimate hope that one day all the world will will be made right. Um. But that doesn't help me today, Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried really hard as I wrote this book to stay in today. <laughs> like this is this is what Black women experience right now, not what they experienced in the '60s, not what they experienced in the '50s. Um, like right now, this is how it feels to excuse me, to watch Charleston unfold on my television screen. This is how it feels to think about mass incarceration. This is how it feels to um, be a part of white ministries and organizations. Um, this is how it feels. And so I wanted to end the book by being honest that it's sort of, um, it's sort of both and, right? That on, on the one hand, I'm hopeful all the time, which is why I stay in church ministries and continue to preach Mm -hmm. and wrote this book. And, um, but I'm also very familiar with disappointment because of Mm -hmm. that. Um, and so I just wanted to be honest that, um, even though I'm not super convinced that I will see America achieve racial equality, um, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop fighting for it. Um, and, and so that's, that's what I'm trying to get at that, I experience a lot of hope. Um, it's why I keep having these conversations and keep going to these conferences and, you know, keep doing this work. Um, but I've been disappointed a lot and I didn't want to end the book by ignoring the the disappointments that come with this work. Yeah. So your language was the shadow of hope and it's the idea of like yeah. showing up even when yep. you have the realization it's not going to happen maybe during your lifetime. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of think that's like Christian hope is that, it, it, I'm not saying it's the same thing, it's, it, it, and the experience of a white Christian hope is the same. No, no not saying that. But like the idea sure. that you continue to, to show up even though what you're hoping for probably isn't going to come to fruition in your lifetime. And that's, right. I think that's a sober optimism instead of this sort of like rose-colored yeah. glasses. Yeah, I agree. Mm. I agree. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell you, it really comes from black history. So just to tie this back into what we were talking about earlier is that I have ancestors who were born into slavery and who died in slavery and were never free. Never. They didn't experience the civil war. They didn't see reconstruction. They, there is no Obama for them. Like their whole lives were in slavery and yet they still presumably fell in love. They still had kids. They still had everyday resistances. Um, they, they still lived, (laughs) they still lived. And so I just feel like you know, on the foundation of all of that, even if I never see the perfection of America, it's still my duty to live as best I can in the pursuit of, of justice. So you tell a story of, uh, you speak somewhere and then afterwards people come up and they do this confessional time with you where, Oh, I didn't realize this was, um, you know, this was offensive. I didn't think about it. Um, I didn't, I think about going up and touching someone's hair and saying, oh, that's pretty neat, might not be well-received. And your line is like, those confessions don't help me. Like, I'm not... They don't do a thing for me. (laughs) Except put me in a space where I'm like, huh, okay. Yeah, but I I don't walk away from other folks' confessions and think, man, I really did some good work today. Do you think that's happening to you? Does it happen more like after you speak, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. in some ways, don't you take on like the priestly role? Like, oh, you're the person in the collar because you're the one who's on the stage. You're shaking your head. You're not going anywhere with. I've really thought about bringing a chaplain with me. <laughs> like, if you would like to make a confession, you should go over there. I, I might start doing it, Luke. But I'm do you think, like, to. when you go on the stage and you get the microphone and you have the lights on you, that you like? Like, I think after church services, people come up and say, oh, I really, you know, felt God during your sermon. And I know that's not me. And I know that they need a person to express their gratitude. That's a really good question, Luke. Um, I I think that makes sense. I I think white people are taking it one step too far, right? So I would love for white folks to come up to me and say, "Um, I was really moved by this. Um, Here's what I'm going to start doing. Um, here's the action step I'm going to take. Here's what I've been thinking about doing and I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to, I'm going to join that organization. I'm going to read that book. I'm going to start that book club. I'm going to be more forceful with my pastor. Like these are things I'm going to do. I think what's difficult is that to just hear like the confession, it just without action. Yeah. Yeah, it, I just like, okay. <laughs> and I would never like I, 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 I wrote it in the book. But if anyone ever came up to me and like gave me the confession, I would not be like, I am not your priest. Right? Yeah. Like, I'm not that mean. No, <laughs> so if people do it, it happens. And I smile. But for those who want to be more aware of this tendency and its impact on people of color, 
But there needs to be an awareness of how this affects. It. As a white person, I come up to you and I say, hey, I, I said this joke to someone that I really shouldn't have said. I need to be aware that that's having an effect on you as a person. Right, right. And, and look, that there probably is someone to make the confession to. It's just not me. Mm-hmm. Right, like if you have said, if you have called someone the N word, or if you are around oh when someone else, like you probably do need to make a confession, but not to me. Mm-hmm. You need to go back to your coworkers or to your family members or to you know, like, like, um, I'm not sure that confessing to me is making it right. And I think that's what white folks are trying to do. They're trying to they're trying to get to the confession to make things right. And I think that's my point. That it is one not making things right, and it is two, it is using me as a stand-in for for whatever this bad thing is that took place, and I don't, I don't gain anything from that. Yeah, and and, there- and it's really hard to hear. It's really hard to after I have preached about us all being together to then listen to five people tell me about racist things that have they have been a part of. It's it's. It's not the easiest thing. Yeah, you you have a line about white churches often just are satisfied with listening and hear. Oh, this is what it's like for you, and then there's nothing to yeah. follow up. And in some ways, this is the same kind of thing. Like I heard what you said. That's right. I should have done this. I hear you, but you're pushing. Let's think of the action steps going forward. And yes, I get exactly that. right. I get that. Well, I'll, maybe I'll write a follow up book and. Uh, <laughs> I'll do that. And my book will be White Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. And uh, <laughs> that will be, uh, that's my book right there. I can't wait to read that. Yeah. By the way, it's real fun to, uh, to be holding this book up on a plane reading it. And a person of color is right next to you. It's like, like, I'm, like, I'm, it's, I, I don't know. What, like, what, what should I say? Sort of like, really, dude? Like, Really, it's it's and it's not a white person. They're probably not saying dude, but um, what when the when the statement is made, my man, what are you doing? What 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 is my response? What if one of my listeners, let's say he's a white guy, yeah. he reads this on a plane, yep. and someone next to him, person of color, is like, really? What is his response? What should he say about that? He should turn back to the first chapter. And read that first sentence. And let me read it to you again. White people are so exhausting. And I'm, and then all the people of color will be like, wow, can I read that? Can I borrow that? Yeah. And they'll... Help me sell some books, people. They'll go get a... Because I read a tweet once that the best way to support people of color is to go buy their stuff or something like that. You had It's super helpful. Which... <laughs> Which I'm just gonna say, can you make a viral tweet about like the best way to support guys who have three daughters is to go buy their book too? Like, can you make that one go viral and like attach a link to my stuff? Because that that's pretty amazing. I don't know. I'm just I'm spitballing here. I feel like I've gotta put this, gotta put this kid through college eventually. Yeah, someone's got to do that. I need a house. I need an office. Yeah, you, with a door. You really. <laughs> <laughs> if people bought enough books for, for the next time we do the podcast That's for you to have a door, I would be really happy. Yes. So everyone just go buy 10 copies okay, of this. I'm going to email you. Yeah. I'm going to email you when it happens. When it, we're going to put that in the universe and it's going to happen. You, okay. You're going to have... Thank you, Luke. I'm here to help. You've done a ton of podcasts now. I have. 
but I, a I think a lot of white male podcasters. We should talk about that. Good God. What? There's a lot of you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, listeners. But, well, sort of. I mean, that is true. It is like all white dudes. <laughs> but when you think of all the white dudes. <laughs> yeah. Like your, your favorite. I mean, it's, I mean, if I had to make a top 10 list. <laughs> top 10? Ten, like I was gonna be okay with three, but ten? Is it really that low? There's a lot of you. But still, like I was the fine. Your child is echoing my heart right now. Just tears. Just tears. Like I figured at least I I have no idea how I'm gonna cut all this together. Like there's gonna be a lot like I'm I'm really gonna have to cut a lot, so I don't I don't know what I'm gonna do. But it's gonna turn out to be you know, like when you have like you're making cookies and like you take them out too early and they like kind of crumble apart, but then you yeah. just like squish them together and yeah. they taste just as good. Like this is going to be it's that. Gonna be it's going to be like that kind of podcast. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be really People good. People are going to love it. It's going to be. They're they're going to be ready. Thanks for, some for more. checking out so, Newsworthy with Morrisworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.